Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Providing Effective Feedback to Law Students and New Lawyers, is from a webinar panel discussion on the impact of individualized feedback on the performance and development of law students and new lawyers, based on the research and writing of Professor Daniel Swartz. Swartz, an award-winning teacher and scholar, presents his findings and their application in academia and beyond and serves as a moderator for the discussion. Minnesota Law alumni Nora Klepaki, founder and CEO of Legal Talent Group, and Amarachi Ihegirika, a product liability defense lawyer with Blackwell Burke in Minneapolis, join Professor Swartz as panelists, bringing their insights on the application of Swartz's research in hiring, training, and retaining the next generation of lawyers. Rachel Brass, co-chair of the Law School Academic Engagement Committee, provides opening remarks. This event was sponsored by the University of Minnesota Law School Board of Advisors Academic Engagement Committee. This webinar was originally recorded on November 20th, 2020. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Hello, I'm Rachel Brass, class of 2001 and co-chair of the Minnesota Law School Academic Engagement Committee. I'm excited to introduce our panelists today as we learn about something critical to our day-to-day legal practices, training and mentoring new lawyers. Let me introduce our three outstanding panelists. First, Daniel Swartz is a Fredrickson and Byron Professor of Law. He is an award-winning teacher and scholar who researches a broad range of issues. He has twice received teaching awards at the law school, no doubt because of the care and thought he has put into what makes teaching effective. He has taken that question critically outside the classroom and made it a subject of research. And we are excited to have him here today to share his expertise on the role that feedback plays in learning and how that extends from the classroom to the courtroom to the boardroom and beyond. Nora Klapke, our second panelist, is the founder and CEO of the Legal Talent Group. With a background in executive search and legal recruiting, Nora brings significant recruiting, talent development, human capital management, and executive advising expertise. In prior positions, she has led searches for partners, shareholders, associates, CEOs, CFOs, vice presidents, and other senior executives and leaders. And so she brings firsthand knowledge as well of the client perspective. And here today to bring that expertise and experience into how we talk to, train, and give feedback to students and new lawyers. And finally, Amarochi Hedge. Erika is a recent law school alumni practicing at Blackwell Burke, where she represents clients nationwide in complex litigation matters and product liability matters. Her practice includes all aspects of civil pretrial practice, including developing proactive winning strategies at the commencement of litigation, briefing offensive and defensive motions, and conducting all phases of discovery. As a more recent graduate of the law school, Amarachi brings a more firsthand perspective on what we all do well and poorly when it comes to giving effective feedback. 
Finally, before I turn it over to the panelists, I remind everyone that we have enabled the Q&A function today, and we very much welcome questions and we'll focus on them in the final portion of our program. So please send them our way. And with that, I turn it over to the panel. Thank you. Wonderful. So I am going to share my screen and hopefully you are now seeing what I am seeing. So I'm going to be talking about providing effective feedback to law students, and I'll be focusing on law students specifically. And then we'll get um, uh, with uh, a later panelist some discussion of how that can be extended out into the legal practice. And so what I'm going to do today is really sort of present three basic sort of parts. Okay. The first part is I'm going to talk a little bit about some research that I did that was inspired by my teaching uh, and my experience in the classroom regarding why providing feedback is effective and how is it effective. So uh, that was something that I, I did some research on. I wrote, wrote an article with actually with a student who is now uh, out in the world practicing Dion Ferganis. Um, after that, I'm going to talk about how the law school has adapted over the uh, uh, subsequent months and years to really embrace providing feedback to our students. And then I'm gonna spend some time talking about how can uh, sort of traditional law professors provide both effective and crucially efficient feedback, because of course there are a lot of demands on our time and, and that really has to be part of the conversation if we're thinking about really delivering an effective uh, product to our students. So let me first talk about my sort of research on this. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about sort of the research question. I'll talk about the natural experiment design or data and results implications. So as many of you probably know, the traditional model of a law school uh, class is that, you know, there's maybe some Socratic dialogue, there's there's some discussion, there's some lecture, but at the end of the day, there's just one final exam and uh, uh, you get that exam and you, you perform it, and then you're given a grade and that's sort of it. And the, the grades are sort of traditionally provided without any sort of clear written or oral feedback, even though uh, law school exams are in some pretty significant ways sort of different in kind than a lot of traditional exams that students have uh, taken. Now, if you're just going to think about this from the sort of perspective of someone who has sort of general knowledge of effective pedagogy, it becomes pretty clear that this isn't the most effective way to teach law students. Uh, uh, there's a tremendous literature that's broad and expansive that really uh, uh, pretty, I think, persuasively shows that if you want to teach people effectively, you need to give formative feedback, by which we mean feedback that's specifically designed to help people learn as opposed to simply give them a sense of where they are. Uh, uh, you have to tell them how to get to where you want them to go. And uh, uh, even though that's true uh, uh, in general, um, that we can have that sense, what I, what I was surprised by as I sort of started thinking about this, you know, several years ago, was there actually is not terribly much uh, uh, research about how to provide that feedback or the value of that feedback in law school. And so what I wanted to really figure out was, okay, you know, is this sort of idea that you need to provide formative feedback, feedback that is prompt, that's trying to constantly sort of help people get better, is that sort of valid in the law school setting or not? Or is there something that makes law school distinct? And I, you know, I've certainly heard that story from plenty, plenty of people. So here's how I decided to test it. I tested it by looking at our students. So as you all know, oops, here we go. Um, 
uh, there are a bunch of students who enroll in class. And what usually happens is those students are split into individual sections, right? As it turns out, the law school has a, a program that specifically tries to balance out our students in terms of their you know, credentials so that all the sections sort of are relatively equal, at least ex ante, in terms of you know, LSAT scores, uh, diversity settings, uh, diversity experiences, undergraduate GPA, and whatnot. And usually, sort of the way things go is that each section has their own sort of set of classes, right, where they have their own professor. So section A has their set of classes, section B has their set of classes, and so forth. But what made my research possible was the fact that, first of all, Historically, it was sort of just uh, uh, each individual professor at the law school maybe had a really different sort of uh, experience or perspective on whether or not to give feedback. So, for instance, I've been trying to give formative feedback in my classes really pretty early, since pretty early on, just based on intuitions that that mattered. And other people do, but lots of other professors didn't. So it would sort of just be random who would be getting feedback depending on who their contract law professor happened to be or their torts law professor and who was not. So that was one sort of key factor that uh, helped me sort of experiment uh, with this. But the second key factor was that on occasion, what happens is that uh, for staffing reasons or whatever else, we have to have double sections where two sections are put together for a single class. So again, this should be familiar to a lot of you, right? You have mostly your classes with an individual uh, with your section, but maybe you're put together for one class in a double section class. And so this entire structure allowed me to ask the following question. The question was, is it the case that students who are randomly assigned to a professor who provides feedback, students in section A in this example, outperform students who are randomly assigned to professors who don't give feedback in their common double section classes? And so in other words, what I'm trying to ask is not, does providing feedback in contract law improve your ability in contract law, but does providing feedback in contract law actually improve first-year students' ability in their other classes? And the intuition that I've always had there is that a huge part of what I'm doing when I provide feedback is helping students understand expectations about how a legal analysis is conducted. How do you, uh, uh, you know, uh, state issues in a way that 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 matches the facts? How do you uh, precisely reach for the relevant rules? How do you apply those rules to the issues in a way that's compelling, in a way that draws from the cases that you've studied? How do you deploy policy analysis? And all of those skills really are pretty generalizable. So my hypothesis was that if students had received that feedback randomly, they would outperform other students who hadn't. And What's nice about this is that because of the class balancing program, ex ante, if there were no effect on feedback, you would expect, of course, that section A and section B would do equally as well in their double section classes, or section B and section C over here. By contrast, if feedback is having the effect that I hypothesized, you might expect that section A would systematically outperform section B. And so that's what I was trying to test. So I got my hands in a bunch of data from the registrar. And in particular, what I was looking for were sections that had this basic structure where you had a double section class, double section 1L class, and where some of those classes were 
uh, coming back over here, what I like to call split feedback double sections, where one of the sections had received feedback and one of the sections had not. So we had 16 double section 1L classes. They were split among various instructors. Um, and what we actually had is we had uh, 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 scenarios in which uh, uh, it was the case that some instructors were providing feedback and some were not. Now, of course, we had to define what feedback meant. And so here was our definition. And I'm happy to provide more details about what we described as individualized feedback and what we decided is not or formative feedback versus not being formative feedback. But at the end of the day, we were looking to uh, identify instructors who were providing uh, uh, feedback that was really targeted towards uh, improving individuals' ability to take law school exams and perform legal analyses by telling them specifically what they got right and wrong, as opposed to providing, you know, some generic model answer. So we were able to find that of these 16 double section classes, eight of them had this setting of split feedback classes, where one of the sections had received feedback concurrently or prior in one of their classes and one uh, weren't, uh, and eight of them weren't. So we decided to focus on these eight sections that, again, had this basic structure where there was just a double section, one of them had received feedback, one of them hadn't randomly. And to look at those eight sections and ask, okay, does this seem to have made a difference. I'll note that even though we defined uh, individual feedback uh, in, in a certain way to include multiple choice exams, that didn't end up really making a difference because in all of our eight split feedback double section classes, the real difference involved individualized written feedback. So here's our results in a nutshell. Okay, we have these eight split feedback double section classes. And what you can tell is that in every single one of these classes, the section that had received individualized feedback in another class uh, outperformed the students in the section that had not in their double section class. So this is section A of con law, double section class. Section This section is substantially outperforming this section in their same class. And remember, that's not what you should expect, right? I mean, these are balanced sections. The professor has no idea most of the time which students are in which section. They're greatly blinding the exams. And so the fact that in every single one of these, the section that had received the feedback outperformed the section that had not is pretty significant. And you'll see, at least in a number of cases, the difference was quite large. I mean, we're talking about very different performances across uh, sections in a number of cases. So these are the basic results. We did a lot to verify that this is a statistically significant uh, difference. Here are the means uh, and differences. But Another way of seeing this is just by looking at the distributions. So you'll see a, a, a substantial, this is sort of your GPA relative to the median GPA in the class. And you'll see that students who had not received feedback are disproportionately represented in below median grades and vice versa for students who had received feedback, they're disproportionately represented in the segments of the class that had received feedback. So we did a lot to verify that this was um, uh, uh, statistically significant. We did some regression analysis. Uh, uh, of course, LSAT scores and undergraduate GPAs also predict uh, students' uh, uh, first-year grades. But you'll see here that feedback is also uh, highly statistically significant in terms of whether or not how students performed. And 
it, if you're sort of just looking at numbers over here, uh, it's about as statistically significant as about a three or four point uh, difference in LSAT scores. So effectively, we can boost students' performance in classes by providing feedback in the same way that, you know, in a, in a way, in a manner that's commensurate to having students have LSAT scores that are three or four points higher. Um, we extended this analysis to look at, okay, is there, are there distributional concerns? Does providing feedback have a more significant effect on some students than others? And what we found is that students who were sort of below the University of Minnesota's sort of average LSAT GPA index were actually being disproportionately benefited by the feedback relative to the above median students. So this suggests not only that can providing feedback can help students perform in all of their classes, but that that benefit is disproportionately felt by people who come in with a, a, a sort of the objective criteria of being below median, which I think is significant. We also did some robustness checks. So one important question is, well, gee, maybe what's happening here is that if a professor provides feedback, they're also sort of clearer. And so maybe that's what's really driving the analysis. So we showed that even if you try to um, uh, control for clarity of instructor with looking at, for instance, uh, teaching evaluations, the effect is still there and still very much robust. So what are our implications? What we found really is that providing individualized feedback in a single class actually improved students' ability to perform in all of their other classes and to perform well in their law school exams. Now, the exact mechanism is one that we weren't able to drill down on, and there are a lot of different sort of potential theories. Maybe, and you know, the the feedback just helps improve their legal reasoning skills. I think that's the one that's most consistent with our initial hypothesis. You learn better what it means to issue spot, what it means to apply rules to issues and to, to leverage facts. But there are other uh, questions as well. Does improved feedback uh, uh, result in improved bar passage. Some of you have may, may have seen actually that we recently had, I think about 98% of our students passing the bar exam. Um, and I you know, personally think one explanation for that might be that we've been providing feedback, and I'll get to this in a second, in a pretty systematic way across the university, but that's still a, a sort of hypothesis. It's not proved. Um, another sort of important uh, implication is it might just be that law school first year grades are not fair if some students are getting feedback and others aren't. I mean, we saw uh, over here that you can be pretty sure you're going to do less well on average if you just happen to get randomly assigned to a section that's not receiving individualized feedback. And, you know, that's pretty problematic if we think of grades as being sort of a, a clear signal of your ability to perform in, in, in terms of actually being a good lawyer, if a huge part of it is sort of randomly based upon which uh, professors you happen to be assigned to. So I think there are a lot of implications. Um, and I think that some additional implications arise from the fact that the, the benefit of feedback really is disproportionately felt by students who maybe come in with less strong credentials. I think arguably law schools and our law school in particular has a particularly strong obligation to those students. I would say that's particularly so because those students oftentimes are receiving less scholarship money, which means it's particularly important that their grades are, are, are sufficient to allow them to get a job. Um, there are a lot of questions that our article doesn't answer. Uh, 
how much feedback is optimal? Uh, uh, why is feedback having this positive effect? Is it because it gets students to uh, uh, adjust their studying habits better? Is it because it gives them a sense of what law school exams are like? Is it because it really improves their skills uh, on conducting the legal analysis? Um, and there are also questions about how does it impact their well-being and so forth. But at the end of the day, these results were, I think, you know, sufficiently compelling that the University of Minnesota, we decided to make some real changes. So the big change we made, I think, that uh, uh, was based on this research was we adopted this policy that everyone else at the law school is going to get a substantial midterm assessment in their first semester. We defined what that means. And then we set up a system where students who really uh, 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 underperform uh, get extra assistance. And so we refer them to our director of academic and bar success to help ensure that those students who maybe are not performing as well as they would like right away are getting the extra support they need. Um, and so now it's the case that every one of our students are getting these midterms uh, in their first semester. But we have much broader uh, uh, really changes that we've been adopting and that I think both are reflected in our culture over time and that we've been continuing to work on. Uh, of course, we have a pretty robust legal writing program, which provides a lot of feedback. We have a law and practice uh, class in the spring semester that provides a lot of feedback. And we just have been increasingly developing our curriculum in the second and third year in a way that uh, I think uh, substantially improves the individualized feedback that students receive. You know, our clinics are, are pretty robust. We're having increasingly uh, a number of classes that focus on providing individualized feedback. I actually helped develop this class on judicial opinion writing for students who are going off to clerk so that they're getting a lot of experience trying to uh, write uh, uh, judicial opinions and, and sort of get a sense of what that entails. But the question then becomes, okay, well, how are we supposed to provide this feedback effectively? And I think that there are some core principles here that we can discuss that um, uh, really cross cut across law schools into a variety of other settings as well. So the first thing I like to emphasize is that when you're providing feedback, you don't want the feedback to come out of the blue. It has to resonate with students in terms of how you've been teaching all along. And so for instance, when I'm teaching sort of our basic cases and I'm focusing on mutual assent or what's an offer and what's an acceptance, one of the things I really try to do are emphasize some of the elements of the judicial opinions that we're reading that I'm going to want students to carry over in their writing. I like to emphasize the basic IRAC structure that even, you know, judicial opinions use. Look, they spot the issue, they tell you the rules, they apply the rules, they give you your conclusion. I like to, to point out, you know, the precision of, uh, of the words that, that, judges use or lack thereof in some cases, um, and how they're identifying the relevant use uh, rules that they uh, that they state at different levels of generality uh, and increasingly more specific levels of generality to then get to the rule that's most directly applicable to the case. I like to really focus on how courts are identifying key facts and explaining why those facts are relevant with reference to the rules and filtering out irrelevant facts. So. These sort of concepts that I try to focus on when I'm teaching cases then become uh, really much more effective when I use them to provide the feedback. And I say, look, you are not or you are using these concepts, right? 
So I'm scaffolding on top of the principles that I have developed uh, in sort of the affirmative uh, teaching. So I'm illustrating these rules. Say, look, you know, uh, uh, over here, you you didn't apply the rule really well because you didn't explain to me. You just laid out a bunch of facts. You didn't explain why those facts are relevant with reference to the rule. And that's something we talked about a lot in class. So students can start seeing the connection between what we're doing in class and what I want them to do on their exams. So these are some general principles, but I want to talk more specifically about how I provide the feedback. So the way I like to think about it is there's a sort of setting the stage for the feedback, then there's the actual feedback, and then there's sort of uh, allowing students to grow from the feedback. Because at the end of the day, we all know, uh, you know, it's it, it's time consuming, it, it's difficult to provide individualized feedback. And so you want to do so in a way that's going to sort of give you the best bang for the buck. So what do I do first? The first thing I do is uh, uh, before I have a midterm, I just give students a lot of problems to work on and I ask them to draft answers and I have them hand them in, okay? And these are not gonna be graded by me. I can't grade that many problems in the course of the semester. But what I can do is I can discuss model answers. And I can say, look, here are here are some model answers. Let's talk about why they're good. Do you see how this model answer defines the issue in this way? Do you see how it sort of starts off with a more general rule and then gets to a more specific rule that's really appropriate for this issue? Do you see how it picks out the key facts from the fact pattern and explains why they're relevant? And so over time, students are sort of starting to develop a sense of what's expected of them. I then actually have them write out an answer and I have a, a TA graded. So now they're getting some a little bit more individualized feedback. But again, it's not feedback that I have to give, uh, uh, which is just very time consuming. Now I'm using a TA to just give advice, advisory grades and just a sense of how they're doing. And one of the nice things about this is that if you start doing this, you can just basically use these same problems again and again, because you're not using them to give grades. So at the end of the day, there's no incentive to cheat for students. They're just learning how to do what you want them to do. Um, then, what I do on the midterm is uh, I give them a midterm that, uh, you know, tries to incentivize effort, like counts for 15% of their grade. And I give them the feedback as promptly as I can give it to them. So just devote, you know, the week afterwards to getting them feedback. Because one of the things the research suggests is the feedback needs to be prompt or else students sort of forget uh, uh, the value of that feedback. And it includes both a letter grade and a, a rubric that explains how I got to that grade, but also just, you know, specific comments. Here's what you did well. Here's what you didn't do well. And in my experience, it's really important to provide both. You've got to provide positive feedback. Here's what you're doing well. So students understand the the, the things that, that they're already sort of achieving on. And then also have a sense of what they need to work on. And again, if you can provide that individualized feedback in a way that's consistent with how you've been talking about cases, how you've been talking about the model answers, now it starts to click. Oh, that's what you mean when you say rule application. Oh, that's what you mean when you say uh, defining the issue at a, 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 in, in a way that, that that's very specific and not at a high level of generality. Well, that's what you mean when you say analogizing to the relevant case law. Um, and then I provide students with an opportunity to meet and, of course, refer students to get extra feedback when they need to do that. So the final thing is then what I really try to do after I've provided that individualized feedback in the midterm is encourage students to build on that. How do I do it? Well, 
Then I, again, assign students to work on problems, but I actually try to use peer review. And I think peer review can become very effective, particularly at this stage in the semester, where a substantial number of students are starting to understand what is expected of them and are starting to uh, be able to provide helpful feedback. And also part of providing feedback allows you to sort of really get your own sense of what you need to work on. So I think providing feedback can be helpful not only for the recipient, but also for the person who's providing that feedback. Um, I provide lots of model uh, questions and answers, and I just encourage students to keep working on it, keep practicing. And at the end of the day, I do the same thing for the final exam. Once the final exam is out, we have a review session, we meet to discuss it. And this entire process at the end of the day, it's time consuming, right? But at the end of the day, I'm only grading two exams, the midterm and the final, and I'm really focusing my individualized feedback on the midterm. But from students' perspectives, what I like to hope is that the entire process feels integrated and they feel like all along uh, 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 they've been developing their skills to be able to produce a written analysis of a legal fact pattern uh, in a way that really is one of the core goals of the first year of law school and that they feel confident going into the final exam that they know what's expected of them. And so those are my thoughts here. And what I think uh, we'll want to do next is maybe turn uh, uh, to Amarachi and Nora to talk about how uh, uh, to provide feedback optimally outside of the law school setting in, in firms or uh, in legal practice and what sort of principles uh, resonate from what I talked about and what don't. So let me uh, stop sharing my uh, slides and turn it over to uh, Nora to talk next. Thanks, Dan. Um, it's really fascinating to see that data and it certainly confirms, I think, things that we have all thought in the past were true and how we could all benefit. In fact, I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder what my law school grades would have looked like if I had had more of an opportunity to get feedback from professors and on the work that I was doing. And so um, it's just great to see that. It's also great to see what the University of Minnesota has done with the curriculum. When you showed the list of changes that have been made that include feedback opportunities for students, that's just amazing because um, for those of us of different generations, that wasn't always the case. Clinics were there, but not always um, other opportunities to really get some feedback on the work that we were doing as students. And so that's just, as I said, fantastic to see. So I'm going to talk just a little bit about some of the parallels that I see in um, the feedback scenario when you get into a workplace as an attorney. And I'm going to use a lens of generations just because um, it's something that I have studied and I think it plays out well to talk a little bit about the experiences that the different generations have had and, and giving feedback, getting feedback. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the current state of, of feedback with legal employers and with our current generation of, of young lawyers. So historically, of course, we've got our baby boomer group and these are our senior partners at law firms right now. Um, they've been around at firms for a while. They're between the ages of 50 or mid 50s to mid 70s. And for them, feedback didn't exist very much in their legal experience. If they didn't get fired, they considered that to be you know, feedback that they got. No news was good news. So the more quiet that um, a partner was about their work, if they didn't get fired, they didn't get 
sort of yelled at or told that their work was poor, they figured they were doing an okay job. And that group is also a group that was really motivated by recognition in the workplace, but they didn't get a lot of formal review. And um, so this is a group of people who didn't get that experience themselves with receiving feedback when they were young attorneys. And so we are now turning to that group and to Gen Xers, which I'll talk about in a minute, and expecting them to be able to give good feedback to, to young attorneys. And so there's really a training component that's involved in that. Um, along with those baby boomers, we have our Gen Xers in the workplace. And those folks are um, in their 40s and up to mid 50s. So that's my generation. And they were the first generation that really asked for feedback in, in the workplace. And you will all, I, I, I wish this was live because I would hear a collective sort of moan and dread in the room when I say, this is where we originated the um, annual review right? This is something that the people who have to perform the annual reviews, those who are evaluating and have to write it, don't really enjoy it. Um, and then the people who are on the receiving end of that annual review usually don't um, find it that helpful. And so it, there are some parallels there. So it's sort of like getting that exam grade, you know, two or three weeks after you've completed the exam and moved on to the next semester in law school and on to new classes. You're getting this grade and it's all retrospective. It's things you did in the past. There's nothing you can change about it, right? The opportunity to make any corrections has passed. And so you're getting all of this information and worse yet, sometimes you're getting surprising information about something you could have changed eight months ago had somebody brought it to your attention and told you about it. So had you gotten that feedback earlier in the process, for eight months, you could have done some correction and done things differently for those past eight months. And so the annual review, while it was a step in the right direction for giving feedback, and because it was at least something tangible, written, usually very formal, um, really, we have found that it just it has its drawbacks because it is always looking into the past and not really helping you make changes for the future. So our, our Gen Xers, um, you know, brought some change to the workplace, but they also didn't get the greatest feedback when they were young associates or young lawyers. Um, so, it, you know, this is challenging because um, they frequently never even saw. So a, a piece of work product, for example, if they are handing something off to to a senior attorney and they've done a written work product, sometimes they were never even seeing what the final draft looked like. So not only were they not just, you know, getting those red lines back, they, they never even saw what that looked like. So, um, you know, once again, not the most effective way or best feedback that was given to that group of people. So now you flip the tables and those people are now having to give feedback to those who are um, coming up below them. And so a lot of them aren't trained and we'll get into maybe a little bit later some thoughts about how how to give that feedback, but I want to talk a little bit about the next two generations that came into the workplace because things really shifted in the workplace when millennials came on board. And I will note that um, the students that Dan was studying are sort of that end, sort of the last end of the millennial organ or uh, millennial generation. And so um, 
what we found when they came into the workplace is that they had different expectations about feedback. This is a group that is very, very connected electronically and was they were getting constant feedback in their lives. And so they really expected that when they stepped out into the legal workplace. And um, for them, a formal review, even some, some legal employers moved to two times a year. So you would get sort of that first midterm review, but then you would also get a review at the end of the year, that that just really wasn't enough. They really wanted things being a real technologically savvy generation. They really want things at a click of the button and much more immediate. So they are looking at for much more immediacy in their feedback. What also happened at law firms, in particular large law firms, at the same time is law firms started to put together training and development programs for for associates to help sort of deal with how do we train and give feedback to folks. And so uh, developing at large law firms, but there were also small employers where they really just didn't have that opportunity or those resources. And as Dean mentioned, giving feedback is really time consuming. Um, uh, giving, grading a final exam and or, um, and or, excuse me, um, giving a final exam and or um, doing a review at the end was certainly um, something that was different for them. And so um, let's talk about where we are today. So millennials came in, they're still associates at firms, and um, they really are looking for digestible feedback. They're looking for things that are actionable. They're looking for the why. So I mentioned with um, Gen X that they sometimes didn't see a finished work product that went out either to the court or to a client. And so what law firms really did was take time to change their their direction in giving feedback to the associates on, on work product. And what, what that resulted in is being able to ask attorneys, why? Tell me the why of you, why you made a, made a change. What was your thinking behind that? What was the strategy behind that? And that's really the type of useful feedback that Dan is describing. So it's beyond that retrospective, but really getting into why do you make changes? What does that mean? How does that help your case? How does that help your argument? What's the strategy that is connected to that? And so, um, that is um, what, what we saw with millennials. There's something else that's interesting about millennials in the workplace. They also feel as though they are they can give feedback. So for the first time, legal employers were getting more feedback from their junior lawyers, which caused also there to be some changes. Um, they also are a generation that we may find, and I know Dan, some of his research in looking at this and looking at the group that was coming into law school and how the law school population has changed, how students students have changed. So associates have changed also. So one of the, the characteristics of the millennial um, um, generation is that they have different decision-making skills than previous generations. And I'll quickly describe that and then jump into sort of where we are today with Gen Z coming into the workforce and their need for feedback. But 
millennials have different decision-making processes, mainly because they were parented different. If you think about sort of helicopter parents, or some people call them lawnmower parents who, who have gone in and swooped in and taken care of things, for, and they're connected to, the, to their parents via telephone and can ask, how do I deal with this decision? Help me make this decision. And so they haven't necessarily had the brain development about decision-making. And so there really is a need when folks get out into that workplace to, to help them see the path as Dan has described, right? You want to go through showing them and, and helping them see how they can apply that to the next case that they work on, how they can use that information to help them on future assignments. And so that's a process that has really shifted. Um, a little bit about what's coming down the pike. And I know, Dan, you're seeing um, Generation Z now in the law school. And so these folks are a little bit different too. Um, we don't have a lot of statistical information or information about Generation Z as, as junior lawyers because they are just starting to hit legal employers right now. But what we do know is some information from, um, from those folks who went right from college into the workforce. So they've been out in the workforce for about four or five years now. And so I've been preparing law firms for sort of a switch now in what they need to think about in their, their training, development, and feedback for younger associates. This group really expects a tremendous amount of connection and feedback from whoever they are working with, their managers. 60% of them, when surveyed, have said they expect um, multiple check-ins in one week. In fact, 40% of them have said they expect to be checked in with every day about the work that they're doing and getting feedback on that work. So that's a big shift. The good thing about this is, is that they are a little more open to constructive criticism than some of the millennial generation. Um, you'll remember the millennial generation is what sometimes we call the T-ball generation. And this is not a bad thing. It's just a fact. They really got participation awards, right? They got rewards for effort. Um, and whether, whether it took them a long time or whether they were good at something didn't matter as much. And so for them, some constructive criticism is a little harder to take. Um, so I agree with Dan completely that you need to work in what they're doing well. And that's really an important piece because if you switch and just start talking about things that they can improve, um, they'll turn off and really you know, get defensive. And so that's not the best tact. Um, so this next generation though is taking um, the, the criticism even better than the millennials did. And so that's a really great thing. The other good thing is while millennials seemed a little more focused on um, getting feedback through an app. Um, there are firms who have actually created apps, some large law firms who have created feedback apps so that they can give that continuous um, feedback to their associates throughout the year rather than really relying on that end of year or mid-year assessment. Um, it's much more immediate. It's much more as Dan describes where they are getting that feedback, they're getting the why, the thought behind it, and they're getting it in real time. So that's been great technology-wise, but we're also finding with the next generation, Generation Z, that they really want more face-to-face -face feedback. So this will mean a switch, too, for those who are giving feedback. They're going to have to switch to um, spending more time one-on-one, face-to-face with this generation coming into the workplace. Um, 
we can talk a little bit more, but I want to give Amarachi a, a chance to talk about her experience. But maybe after this, we can talk a little bit about how you give some effective feedback that parallels with what Dan has already said. Great. Thanks so much, Nora. So let's turn it over to Amarachi to talk about your experience with all this and what, you, what you're thinking is about the feedback you've received both in law school and as a young associate. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Nora. Um, I think I agree with um, the commentary um, that you've made so far as regarding the importance of individualized feedback um, to law students and to new lawyers. Um, and so I can, you know, give my take having been a recent grad of the University of Minnesota Law School um, on individualized feedback for um, law students. And then also what that looks like in practice and literally in practice in the practice of law. Um, so to Dan's, uh, going back to Dan's presentation, I think the University of Minnesota has done an excellent job um, in developing uh, individ individualized feedback as part of its um, both core curriculum um, and also kind of practical, more practicum, you know, courses that the university offers in the second and third year um, of law school. Um, so I remember taking a community mediation clinic. Um, I know moot courts weren't on the list, but I also, um, participated in a moot court in my second and third year um, of law school. And it was, you know, having that um, feedback, especially from, you know, a lot of the attorneys that, um, the adjunct attorneys that come in and teach some of those courses um, are, you know, they're, they're practicing attorneys, they're currently practicing attorneys. And so having some of that, you know, real life um, application of what does it look like in the actual practice of law to apply these concepts before you even graduate um, was critical to me in my um, law school, my time in the law school, my performance um, in law school, and then also, you know, graduating, you know, practice ready. Um, I don't think you could ever really be completely ready for the practice of law, um, but as practice ready as you could be in having the foundation. Um, and the, the lawyering, basic lawyering skills um, to then go forth and, and uh, put into practice. Um, so I think, again, the university is doing an excellent job and I'm very happy to see that individualized feedback has become, you know, based on Dan's great research, you know, part of, you know, theory-based theory um, courses at the law school. Um, I think that's a great direction. As far as my um, now taking that sort of individualized feedback concept and, you know, extending it beyond beyond the four walls of the law school um, and taking it out into the legal workplace, um, I think that feedback in practice, you know, to Nora's point, typically takes the form of, you know, formal um, feedback structure or program um, so an annual review or, you know, mid-year review and then an annual review as well. Um, and I think what is less common, and I know, you know, Nora, I, I loved the historical um, kind of 
take that you had on kind of how different generations understood what they understood feedback to, to be, how they were given feedback um, and how that's changed um, through the different generations. You know, but I would say that law firms are, are in a lot of ways still pretty traditional um, as far as how they give feedback. So, you know, the you're only going to formally get, you know, an ev a holistic evaluation on all the matters you've worked on and, and from people that you uh, have worked with um, maybe once or twice a year. And then beyond that, this kind of informal feedback that you refer to, you know, being something that um, the Gen Zers or the Gen Xers began to expect um, is still not as common in, in, the, in the legal workplace, either in law firms, in-house legal departments or other kinds of legal organizations. And I think that that is really where you have the opportunity to give that individualized feedback that Dan was referring to in his presentation where you know, you're, you are providing um, you know, kind of an update, status update on you know, what that person's performance is um, on a particular task, um, a project, but it is very specific um, as far as here's what you did well, here's what you did not do well, um, and kind of bridging the gap and saying, how do we, here's what I expect, here are my expectations, and how do you get from where you're at to where, you know, you need to be um, in your understanding and your application um, of the law. Um, and it could be more soft skills and how you interact with clients. Um, how do we get from point A to point B as far as de developing that uh, lawyering skill? And I think that's what I have found a lot of times to be missing, that it's very easy to tell someone what you're not doing right or to tell them what their strengths are, what they're selling at. Um, but then how do you take, you know, how as the person receiving that feedback, how are you to implement it um, and receiving direction on that? I find that that specificity is often missing. Um, and so that's something, you know, as advice to people who are in the process of giving feedback, you know, I think being as, as specific as you can be um, with the feedback you're giving is great. And then, uh, you know, early and often, right? So, you know, Nora kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the idea of if, you know, in an annual review in a formal process, if that person finds out, you know, that they made a mistake eight months ago, nine months ago, there's no opportunity to correct that. Um, I mean, from that point on, they can, right? So there's still, you know, it's not a closed door, but there's no opportunity at the time that they make that, you know, what is perceived to be an error to make the modification tweak that's necessary. And so what happens is they could have continued to make that same mistake or error for the last eight months. And now it's built up um, to a point where it's now looking to be a significant deficiency um, versus something that, you know, had they had the guidance early on, um, could probably easily have modified. Um, so I think, you know, early and often is something, you know, with individualized feedback that makes it more effective. 
Um, and then just to uh, touch on what I think are some, you know, barriers to giving feedback, because I don't think it's something that a lot of people are excited to do. Um, and having not been in a position where I give feedback, you know, I've been in that position a few times, but not often as a newer lawyer. Um, but just putting, trying to put myself into the position of, of the person giving feedback and be understanding, you know, it's not something that people jump at the chance, jump at the chance to do, um, unless it's something that's required through a formal process. And I think it's just because it can be time consuming as to both to Dan and Nora's point, right? You know, the people who are giving feedback are typically senior partners um, or otherwise supervisors. Um, and they have multiple commitments on their time as well. So, the, you know, you're practicing law as a newer lawyer, they're practicing law the, as a newer lawyer. They have several cases on their plate, you have several cases on your plate. But in addition to that, they're then expected to give uh, feedback as the, you know, person in charge of the case, the manager of the case, um, to those that they're delegating to. And then they're also um, expected to, they have other responsibilities outside of just the traditional practice of law. So client procurement, if it's a law firm, client pr procurement um, and client engagement, right? So I think time is a significant barrier to feedback. And one of the ways, you know, that as I was thinking about it and how I've seen it done where it's really effective is rather than thinking about it as this separate thing that needs to happen outside of the work. So, you know, you assign a task, um, the person gets it done and reports back to you. Um, thinking about it as really integrated into the, the working relationship. Um, so meaning that, you know, if there's time in your schedule or if it's on your calendar to have a case team meeting, a standing meeting every day um, at the same day, same time every week, then as part of that um, interaction, building in a couple of minutes, um, to provide feedback, um, either during the meeting itself, or if it's something where you feel like, hey, it's not appropriate to discuss this in front of everyone, then, you know, kind of when everyone jumps off the call, just say, hey, I'd like to, you know, a couple minutes here, we're talking about Zoom since for the last eight, eight months, however many months, that has been our primary way of communication. So assuming that's a virtual communication, then you can just say, you know, hey, can I speak to, with you um, for the last five minutes of the call when every, and then everyone else uh, can jump off the call. Um, so just building it into what you're already doing or if you guys have an email chain going um, where you're discussing, you know, you, you provided some, a memorandum on, on a specific legal issue. You guys are going back and forth how to build it out, how to present it to the client, whatever it is, right? It's a continuous process then in the email chain itself as the person who's managing the project, giving guidance, giving, you know, practice pointers, so making suggestions of where to look um, for a particular concept, how to narrow a particular um, research question. So, you know, hey, we're not looking nationwide, look in the Eighth Circuit or look in, you know, the District of Minnesota. It's a way to provide um, feedback isn't always, you know, this final sort of, you know, you submit a, uh, a, pro, uh, a, a 
you submit a brief and then that's it. It's a handoff and it's done and no more conversation, right? Um, feed ca feedback can be giving guidance during the process of getting the work done. And I've, I've found that when that happens, um, it's a lot more effective as far as even just you learning in your professional development um, as the junior attorney, because then you're kind of seeing how that person does it. And this is something that they probably have done several times before. Maybe it's, you've never done this particular thing before. And you're seeing how they do it. You know, you're seeing how they think through the issues, the considerations they make, how they limit the scope of issues. So sometimes, you know, I mean, some issues you could just research to the death of them. Um, but how do they limit the scope of issues? Um, how do they engage with clients? Um, and you can kind of mimic that because they're essentially taking you along for the ride. It's kind of like, you know, a coaching. It becomes almost a coaching relationship um, or, you know, just a mentor-mentee relationship. Um, and so that sort of, you know, thinking about feedback in that way, um, I think helps for the people who are um, giving feedback um, where they don't feel like it's a huge commitment on their time. And it helps for the person who's receiving the feedback um, to kind of see how it's done and how it's modeled and then to be able to do accordingly and not end up with a situation where down the road they come, uh, they arrive at an annual review and then they're, they're completely surprised um, by all the things that they supposedly did wrong um, because it was never mentioned earlier. So. Great. Well, listen, thanks to both of you. And I, I want to remind everyone, all the participants, that the uh, Q&A is open and you're free to, to ask questions through there. And while, while people are doing that, I guess I'll, I'll start off. One of the real questions I think a lot of people have is, well, how do you get feedback? I mean, it's clear feedback is relevant. It's clear it's helpful. Um, but a lot of times it's hard to get feedback from uh, lawyers who are busy what are the things going on? And so I guess I'm wondering, uh, uh, I want to ask both of you if you have any suggestions for um, uh, students, lawyers, how to get feedback. One thing I'll say sort of to preface that is something I'm always telling students is you've got to learn how to give yourself feedback. And giving yourself feedback means asking yourself, what would I rate my work here? How would I rate what I did, trying to be able to step outside of your shoes. Sometimes that requires time, going back to something you did a week or two ago, but you know, after it's done and going back, it's like, okay, well, now I have fresh eyes. What do I think about this? Um, sometimes it, it, it's about looking at the draft you handed in and then looking at the final draft that was meant to say, okay, here are all the changes. Why were those changes made? Maybe I don't have time to get the senior partner to explain why she made all those changes, but let me try to get at that and ask that question. Um, uh, uh, and so uh, sometimes it involves, you know, coming up with uh, uh, partnerships with with other people, your same seniority saying, hey, 
can you tell me what you think of this memo? You know, and I'll tell you what I think of your memo and, and getting that outside perspective. Um, so those are some of the tools that, that I think are, is really important. Uh, at the end of the day, being your own editor is, I think, probably the most important thing to be able to do to develop that skill. But I'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts about how, how do you solicit feedback? How do you get feedback as a lawyer? And how do you sort of learn to develop your own capabilities of sort of self providing your own self feedback. Sure. I can jump in with that. Um, in my coaching business, I end up coaching um, associates or junior attorneys frequently about just that. How do they get feedback? And I love the idea, Dan, about self-feedback. And I also love the idea about peer feedback, right? Um, you mentioned that that you use that with the law students. You have them work with a peer. And I think that that is certainly a way to get feedback. But I also think you have to ask for feedback and if you aren't getting it. And that's that can be difficult. And the first thing that I coach people on is figuring out who are the right people to ask. Um, sometimes it's not the person that you worked on a project with. They may be too busy or they don't have the skill set of giving constructive feedback that is helpful. And if you realize that, then you may have to venture out to others. Maybe it's a junior partner at your law firm or somebody who's more senior than you, but not quite as senior as the person you were working with. Maybe it's, um, you know, a a mentor that you have developed, whether through a formal program or through your own relationship building within the firm. It's a little hard to use external sources because when you're looking at work product, there, there are some concerns there about what you're sharing and you know trying to redact things. And so that's a little bit of a challenge if, if your mentors are external. Um, and one of the other things I know we've talked a lot uh, in this conversation about substantive work and feedback on what I would call um, the billable hour work, but there's also other feedback that people need. People need feedback about their interpersonal skills and their EQ and their client development skills. And so those are things that you can reach outside of your, your employer or where you're working to get some of those skills and get some feedback on that. And so um, but you have to ask. Uh, another thing that is sort of new, um, especially at large law firms, they now have professionals who are dedicated to client development and collecting client feedback. And there's, you're starting to see, at least in those settings, more feedback than ever from clients about what they feel your performance was. And so that's one more opportunity and another source of some feedback for you. But you have to identify and then you have to figure out and get your confidence level up sometimes to ask for what it is that you need. And that's not always easy. And, you know, as we keep pointing out, we're talking about really busy people. You're busy. The person you're asking is busy. And so, um, but you've got to develop some of those relationships. It's really important. Yeah. And so that actually links to a question we have um, of, uh, uh, from Courtney Baga about um, uh, uh, to, one of the difficulties she mentions that that can be difficult in terms of getting feedback is that a lot of partners uh, they just feel busy and they don't want to give associates a second chance. Sometimes I think you know lawyers' perspective is you screwed up once. I just uh, it's just easier for me to find someone else who won't screw up. And I guess a, a question was how do you overcome that? How do you um, uh, develop in in, in lawyers? Uh, the perspective that, look, you know, sometimes it's worth it to give people a second chance. Sometimes it's worth it to try to uh, uh, help uh, uh, people sort of 
uh, overcome those barriers. One of the things I will say in answering that, and I think this goes back to one of the points that, that we found in our study, you'll remember that what we found is that feedback was disproportionately valuable to students who came in without maybe the, the, the quite a sterling of the credentials in terms of their LSATs and GPAs. And a lot of times whether the, what people need, the people who need feedback are not the people who are less talented, but they're the people who maybe didn't grow up with lawyers in the family, who didn't grow up uh, uh, reading you know, uh, law school cases, who don't have a sense of how things operate. And so if you value diversity, I think, and if you value uh, uh, the the opportunity to uh, uh, instill in, in the lawyers who work there a sense that it's a real meritocracy, part of being a meritocracy means providing feedback, because if you don't, you're sort of implicitly advantaging, I think, a, a lot of the folks who come in just with sort of uh, you know, uh, 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 to just sort of more implicit knowledge. And it doesn't mean they're more talented. It just means that sometimes you need to actually do a little bit of work to, to, to sort of, you know, set the, set the floor, even so that everyone's competing from the same perspective. So that's one sense I have, but I wonder, I wonder if either of you have any thoughts about that. How do you get lawyers, partners who are busy, who don't want to give people a second chance, whoever thinks on, how does a firm and how do uh, lawyers who work there uh, try to change that culture? So so it's a really important question. Yeah, so I can go ahead and jump in. Um, I I thought that was an interesting question just because it's quite common from from an associate's perspective or new lawyer perspective. to have an experience where, you know, you work on an assignment and um, you you don't hear back um, or you don't get feedback on it um, or you get very, you know, stern, you know, it's constructive criticism and it's definitely valid form of of feedback, um, but it's very stern and it's just, you know, highlighting what went wrong or what wasn't done right without the extra added, how do you rectify this? And really no desire, it seems like, to do that. Um, and then at that point, it's like, you know, what, what do you do about it? You're kind of at a standstill. Um, I don't think it's something that the associate can do about it, right? You know, if, that, if that's how the partner is deciding they want to manage their case, um, manage that client relationship you know it's not something that at your level at that point you have a lot of weight you you know you pull a lot of weight to change that or to change someone's personality um and so i think it really comes down to the law firm management right and the the management understanding the importance of some of this kind of research where you're looking at you know how formative uh feedback is important but also how summative feedback is important so highlighting both strengths and weaknesses and understanding that it's critical to professional development because the studies show that it is. Um, and then incentivizing the partners to, to do both, right? Incentivizing them in, in different ways um, to, you know, give that sort of feedback or give people, you know, a second chance. Um, and I would just say for, you know, for the partners, you know, you, you didn't, you probably didn't get where you were by, you know, being completely perfect and never making any mistakes. Um, and so, you know, if sometimes it's just helpful to maybe remember how you got where you were and what it was like starting out as a 
new lawyer and you know the a lot of times people that gave you a chance um, that saw that potential in you um, and then go from there. Another thing I'll say is, you know, there are, you know, speaking to your point about kind of some of these disparities in, in um, the law school and then how that maybe gets reproduced in law firms, right? There are people that come into this having lawyers in their family, you know, having, uh, you know, maybe their dad is a partner at a large law firm somewhere, you know, so they know how the law firm culture works. And a lot of times it comes down to understanding the culture. A lot of things aren't necessarily, oh, you, you know, it's not, oh, you don't get it or you don't have the, you know, the knowledge, right? You don't have the intellectual capacity, but it's more so is you don't know how to present that in the law firm setting if you have not been exposed to that setting before. And so that's where it's really crucial for people to make, you know, people who are more senior to you to offer that direction as far as not just substantive work, because it, it maybe has nothing to do with that, but stylistically, um, how you're presenting that work, how you are presenting yourself. Um, it's important that the law firm incentivizes, you know, the um, senior partners and other leaders in the law firm to do that because there are people that will get that outside of the law firm because again, they have people in their family who are practicing attorneys, you know, or, you know, they've developed a, a mentorship relationship, you know, with one of the, you know, rainmakers in the law firm. So they just lucked out, right? And so it can't be a thing where it's favorites and it's like, okay, you just happen to be this person's favorite. So therefore they're gonna take the time and give you this guidance. But if you're not their favorite, then whoop, guess you're out of luck. You know, it really cannot be that sort of picking and choosing, so. And to, to link this, so we have two other questions and we're, we're already a little bit past time. So we're probably gonna have to wrap up in a, in a couple minutes. Um, but there are a few questions about sort of, I guess that were specific to some of the research I did about to what extent does this feedback end up either instilling more confidence in students or end up having long-term effects. Now, neither of those were things we were able to study in my particular paper. Um, and there are reasons for that. It's harder to measure confidence, for instance. And once you start getting later in life, one of the things that's nice about the 1L year is um, it's fixed, so there's no choice. So you don't have to worry about selection effects. Once you start trying to measure, you know, how students perform on the exam, on the bar exam, there becomes all sorts of endogeneity concerns where maybe people are getting more feedback because they're seeking out more feedback, or maybe they don't want it, you know, maybe they're not getting feedback because they don't want it. So it's harder to study that. But I will say this, and I think this is, you know, it, this is more anecdotal, but I really, this can say, I, mean, I really do believe that one of the reasons why the law school has had such success with bar passage recently, uh, as I said, you know, the, the latest numbers are sort of astronomical, 98% of our students passing is because uh, uh, we're starting to, you know, there are a lot of reasons. I don't want to claim this is the only reason, but I think part of it is we're starting to really try to provide feedback in a more systematic way. And to, I think that does build students' confidence. And I think it makes them feel like, they are capable of achieving if they just know what they're supposed to try to do. And it doesn't, you know, I, th I think that, that a lot of law sometimes creates this mystique of, you know it or you don't, and that's not how it works. I mean, we, are, we all learn, we all uh, make mistakes early on. And, um, and so I think that if we're trying to incentivize partners and lawyers, this is about the, the long-term fortunes of your firm. This is about the long-term success of your organization. If you're not investing time into 
not just making changes, but explaining to people, why are you making the changes? What are the problems? How can they improve? Um, uh, uh, you're really doing a disservice to the long-term future of your firm, of your organization. And I think framing in that way, and that's how I, that, that's how I think we've tried to frame it at the law school with, with faculty. You know, if we care about our students going out there succeeding uh, and doing well in the world and, and passing the bar and getting jobs and becoming successful alumni uh, uh, who give money back to the law school, uh, uh, part of that's about investing and really teaching them uh, how to do what we're trying to do. And that's hard work, um, but it's also rewarding. It's part of what our job is. and It's part of uh, how we can accomplish our mission. Um, so I think we might need to, to close on that note. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Rachel for sort of a, a goodbye. I know we went over a little and I know we weren't able to get everyone's question, but uh, uh, I really appreciate everyone's perspective on all of this. Thank you again, Dan, and to all of our panelists, and also to the more than 50 uh, folks who joined us for this uh, wonderful way to end a Friday. Um, uh, we really appreciate folks who are you know, using the Zoom to engage with the law school. And if you um, have things that the law school is doing that you'd inter be interested in hearing um, a CLE or programs on, you know, you can reach out to me uh, or, or others directly at the law school. And uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing many of you again at our next program in the spring. Have a great day. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law Podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.